I mean, really, you gotta wake the doctor up? What's with that? And I don't get the significance of the lime and the coconut, but I can tell you this, I have some significant stuff to share with you today. This is Dr. Dan Diamond, and welcome to The Anatomy of a Hero, Finding Significance Under Pressure. After I served at the New Orleans Convention Center following Hurricane Katrina, uh, working in the triage unit there, I didn't come home with the, with the big question of why is it that we had so many victims. What really got to me was a much different question and a life-changing question. I want to know, what is it about some of those people that no matter what you do to them, you can't stop them? They don't become victims. There's something about some of those people that makes them bulletproof. I mean, I worked alongside people that lost everything. The only thing that they had was the clothes that they had on their body, and yet they were still making a difference. They were still engaged. They were still leaving a legacy. I read a book a long time ago, even before I went down to Katrina, uh, by a guy named Bob Buford. It's a book called Halftime. It was a challenging book for me at the time, but it is much more challenging now. He mentions in this book that most people in the first half of their lives strive for success. But in the second half of their lives, they really are shooting for significance. And I I spoke to a group of high school kids a few years ago, and I talked all about the heroes that I had in my life. And my challenge to them was, if in the first half of their life, most people are looking for success, and the second half, they're looking for significance, why would you want to wait Why not get a head start on this concept of significance? So this section, this anatomy of a hero finding significance under pressure, really comes from a deep passion that I have to share what I've learned in having the privilege of working alongside of people that have lost everything and continued to be significant. Today what I want to talk to you about is the concept that we developed while we were down there working with these people, of a, a thing we call circumferential trauma. You see, what had happened was the, the police and the fire and the EMS, or emergency medical service personnel, were all displaced. They'd lost their homes. Their families had been evacuated ahead of time. So they didn't have those people that were closest to them that they depended on anywhere near them. They were out of state. The majority of them had gone to Texas. So here these folks are trying to protect and serve and rescue and put out fires. And the most bizarre thing happened in the midst of all this. There were actually people that were shooting at the rescue workers. I mean, it just makes no sense to me, but they were shooting at these rescue workers. So they had no place to stay. They were living on the street uh, and and people are shooting at them when they're trying to rescue them and save these people. They were experiencing firsthand this concept of circumferential trauma. We really had some problems. At the end of the first week, I sent my team home, and I brought in a woman that's a specialist in dealing with people that are struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder. And we talked about how can we best meet the needs of these folks that are experiencing this circumferential trauma. We had... 
two police officers that unfortunately committed suicide when we were down there. We had one paramedic that we had to put in the hospital because he became suicidal. These were people that were serving and yet still sleeping in their cars or sleeping in the floor of an old abandoned warehouse and still trying to make things work, still trying to help other people. But things had gone haywire. It was too overwhelming. So I came home from that experience and really wanted to think about what was it about some of them that they didn't get down, they didn't get burned out, and they were able to stay in and continue to help other people. Perhaps you found yourself in a situation similar to theirs. I mean, maybe you didn't go through a hurricane or a major earthquake or some big natural disaster, but maybe you have your own disaster going on in your life. You know, maybe you've been cut off from your closest friend and that person's no longer there for you to be able to confide in and solve problems together. Maybe you're going through a time where it feels like nothing seems familiar to you anymore and the usual landmarks in your life are just not there because things have changed, the rules have changed, things at work have changed or things at home have changed and now you're beginning to experience this circumferential trauma. Well, let's take a look at the five things that you can do to overcome circumferential trauma. Let's take a look at this concept of psychological armor. Now, when I talk about psychological armor, I'm not suggesting that we put up barricades to keep other people away. I don't think that at all. In fact, you'll see that several of these elements of psychological armor are directly dependent on our relationships with other people. So that's not it at all. It is not an armor to keep people away, but it's an armor that you can protect yourself with so that you can stay in relationship and stay in the situation and still um, experience significance and make a, a difference in the lives of other people. There are five parts to this psychological armor, and we're going to talk about one of them today. But I'll run through all five for you. The, the first one is gratitude, and we're going to talk about that in detail today. The second is finding meaning in your situation. The third thing is operating from a place of strengths, understanding what you're, what you're good at and doing that well, and then having a good support team in place, and then learning how to effectively cope. So today we're going to talk a bit about gratitude and, and what's involved in becoming someone that expresses gratitude and experiences gratitude. And then next time, we'll dig in and take a look at meaning and what that means and how are gratitude and meaning interrelated because they definitely are. So I've got a great quote for you from a great American philosopher, Ben Stein. And he says, I cannot tell you anything that, in a few minutes, will tell you how to be rich. But I can tell you how to feel rich, which is far better, let me tell you firsthand, than being rich. Be grateful. It's the only truly reliable get-rich-quick scheme. Ben Stein. Great insight. Great insight. There's this concept that I talk about frequently when I am working with patients about target fixation. And, and if this wasn't radio, I would show you a short clip of 
uh, that's on the internet that is um, a short little video clip of a guy in a motorcycle race. And they're, they're just zinging around the corner, and they're, these guys are flying by. And he leans in, banks into the corner, and he cuts just a little bit too far, and his handlebars start to wiggle back and forth, and they go faster and faster and faster. And eventually, he's ejected off the motorcycle. It only takes a couple of seconds, but he must be going... I, you know, I, I would guess 80, 90 miles an hour, and he just gets flung down the, the track, and it's horrible to watch this, but what happened next is even more terrifying. As you see riders going to the right of him and to the left of him, dodging, you see one rider that comes up from behind, and he land, lines up looking right at this guy's crashed motorcycle laying there in a heap. And as he gets closer and closer and closer, it becomes more and more evident what's going to happen. Sure enough, the guy hits that crashed motorcycle exactly right in the center of the motorcycle. And he flips, goes right over the end of his handlebars and splats all over the racetrack. I mean, fortunately, both guys get up and miraculously, I have no idea how, um, they both run off the track. But it's a great example of target fixation. The Washington State Patrol teaches their police officers this same concept of target fixation. The way it works is you go where you look. So they teach their their officers, if you find your car going out of control, don't look at the tree that you're afraid you're going to hit. Look where you want to go. The same thing with this guy in the motorcycle. He looked at this motorcycle, I'm sure, saying, I'm not going to hit it, I'm not going to hit it, I'm not going to hit it. And in the process of doing that, he lined himself up directly and nailed it. I've done the same thing in relationships, and I'm sure you have too. I, I have this thing that I see patients doing, and, and frankly, I've done it many, many times as well. It's a thing that I call an Eeyore's list. It works sort of like this. You know, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, the old gray donkey. He wanders through life, kind of saunters along saying, what's the use? Always rains on my birthday. No one remembers anyway. So people that get in this mindset of focusing on the negative find more and more things that they can count as negative things on their list. They get this massive Eeyore's list. Most recently, I saw a patient that came in that was telling me all of the things that were wrong with her, but then when she ran out of things, she started talking about all the other people in her family, and it got to where she's talking about, and my sister-in-law's son has this and this and this, and I said, oh, wait, 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 stop. Let's look at what you're doing. You're getting a long Eeyore's list. Did you realize that you shifted not only from your own issues, but to your sister's issues and then to your other relatives as you start expanding out, looking for other people's things that you can add onto your Eeyore's list. Unfortunately, as you begin to focus on the Eeyore's list, you begin to go further and further and further down into that dismal, dark place that can oftentimes end up in depression. The same thing can happen in relationships. And I wish that I could tell you that I've never done this, but that wouldn't exactly be true. I have, from time to time, become critical of the people that I'm closest to. 
And I've found that the more things that I find to criticize, the more things that I find to criticize. And pretty soon I become more and more dissatisfied. I'm getting smarter in my old age now. So when I catch myself doing this, I stop and back up and make the conscious decision that I'm not going to fixate on the negative, but I'm going to start fixating on the things that I like. And it's amazing how much they change. Well, actually, it's my perception of them changes. But I find myself falling in love all over again, not because they changed, but because I chose what I was going to focus on. You go where you look. And if you're looking at the positive, you end up finding more and more positive things about the other person. Back in 1998, there were a group of people that got together and formed a new branch of medicine, and that is positive psychology. Up to that point, psychology had been completely consumed with and focused on solving diseases. So it was helpful because we took this uh, psychology, which had been a little bit lofty and brought this into a well-categorized and structured definitions of different types of psychological disease. But in doing so, we've ended up focusing on helping people out of the hole, but we didn't really even consider looking beyond that to what are the things that we can understand about helping people to uh, experience a fulfilled life or a significant life. So back in 1998, Martin Seligman and others uh, got together and started kicking around some ideas about what they knew about how people could be more fulfilled. They started doing a lot of research, and they really wanted this to become science-based, evidence-based understanding of how people can experience life and experience it to the full. In 2005, Seligman did a very fascinating bit of research that I'm going to share with you today. And this is something that's very practical that you can take back with you uh, after you get done listening and try this. And I would almost guarantee that you're going to find that it will make a significant difference. It's not very complicated. What they found back in 2005 was if they could get people to keep a gratitude journal, and I'll tell you what that is in just a second, if they would do it for just one week, Then they could go back and study those people that did it versus the control group, and they found that they were able to differentiate which people kept the gratitude journal versus those that didn't. And those that kept the gratitude journal, by the way, were better off than the people that had not kept the gratitude journal. So what is a gratitude journal, and how in the world can you do it? This is, I'm really happy to say, something that's very, very easy to do. It's something that I've started doing recently after looking at the research uh, because I'm convinced that it can make a tremendous difference. And it makes sense. It's based on this whole concept of target fixation. You go where you look. So here's how it works. Get yourself a journal. And I don't really care if you want to get a journal that's uh, a old-fashioned bound empty book and write in that, or if you want to go uh, and have some sort of electronic journal. I personally use one that's called Day One Journal. It's an app on my iPhone. Every day, 
I write down three things that I'm grateful for, just three, and then I take time to savor those things and allow my mind to experience why it is that I'm grateful for those things. So that's it. It's not hard to do. Consistently, every day, for one week, and you'll get benefits from doing that that will last six months. Now, unfortunately, they didn't study specifically what would happen if somebody continued to do it, but I would extrapolate out that if you're willing to continue to keep a gratitude journal and get in the habit of writing down three things every day that you're grateful for, that you'll find that will make a tremendous difference in your life. So I'd like to ask you a favor. Please, if you do it, come back and share your comments here on the website and let me know how it goes for you. You might find that uh, you'll be able to encourage other people that are considering keeping a gratitude journal. So there you have it. A brief look at the beginnings of psychological armor. And we're going to talk next time about meaning and how that fits in and can protect you so that you're able to stay engaged and find significance under pressure. This is Dr. Dan Diamond, and you're listening to The Anatomy of a Hero, Finding Significance Under Pressure. Doctor.